So, today, also a little different than your Sunday morning experience in, in many situations, we are going to go through a Bible study. We're actually going to go through several verses today. And the reason we're approaching it this way is, for one, the, the text needs to be kept in context. You know, you kind of, kind of see it in the overview, the big picture. But also, as we read through the Bible, as we study it, we understand you'd read it a chapter at a time and a verse at a time. You would go through it that way. And that's why I love being able to, to teach this way, is to walk through the Word together, as Jonah even prayed, that we would have hearts that are open, that we would receive even correction or comfort. And so I believe as we go through the Word, it does give direction for our lives. So we've started this study in 1 Corinthians some time ago. Uh, the series is called, the titled, Called Out, Called Up. God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. In Corinth, um, people were getting saved, and then they're having to sit, figure out how do they live? How do I do this? Just like what's happening for, in our world today. Now, what took place in a general sense, as far as experientially and, and how it affects us practically, you commit your life to Christ. What that means is you were stirred, something took place, situations and scenarios you would maybe somehow assimilate. But there was a conviction in your heart of your own personal sin. And your response to that conviction was agreeing with God that it's your problem that you were the one that went against him, that you were in rebellion to him. And so as he stirs that awareness, he doesn't do it to make you feel shamed or put down. He brings you to this crossroad of conversion, so to speak, on your journey, to where you respond with a, God, I, I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I put my trust in you, Jesus. And your wording and your phraseology would be different in different circles, but the, the cry of the heart's the same. I need you, Jesus. And at that point, when you, you respond to his grace, you agree with his forgiveness, you receive his, his forgiveness, the Bible says that you're born again. You are now, if you would, in this world, but not of this world, you're born of the Spirit. So, you were in this world, horizontally, so to speak, figuratively, but now you've been called out of that, and called up. Now, you didn't leave the place. You still reside here. You're called up. You're born of the Spirit. So you're called out, called up. So there's a relational new you, and God invites you to live in love at a higher level, to now live differently. You know, salvation doesn't come so you can keep doing stupid. Salvation is so that you have new life and forgiveness, and you can live this new life. And so now, he invites you and me to live and love at a higher level. Previously, you loved at a level that was limited to your own perception or your potential. But it was pretty low, wasn't it? You could easily love people that were lovable. You could easily be nice to people that were nice. But that guy driving down the freeway differently than you, that guy too slow out of the parking lot from you, whatever, you know, all of a sudden you're not so loving. But who you are as a Christian is different. Because literally God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, empowering you, and enabling you, equipping you 
to love with his love. The very love that, that brought him to the cross and raised him from the dead is that love that resides within you. So now you can live and love at a higher level. And I think we can all bump it up a notch, right? I've yet to meet a person who's like, I tend to disagree with you, Dan. I'm loving at a high level. Jesus and I talk, I give him some instruction, I advise him on some things, and it all works out well. You know, no one's, that, no one's born again in that arrogant. You know what I'm saying? We can all live and love at a higher level now. That being the intro, that kind of helped kind of get our frame of mind, if you would. This letter is, it's a type. In other words, it's corrective and instructive. It addresses some things in the church that needed to be corrected. And it gives instruction on some questions that have arisen within the church. So... Let's not think that this was just for the locality, the church of Corinth. It has application. There is some specific things, I think, that drive the content a little bit. But the principle is applied in our life today, in our church today, in contemporary Christianity. Here's some things that we've already unfolded in, and dug into in the first six chapters. We've seen that there were divisions within the gathering of Christians there in Corinth. We would call them cliques, right? So is it possible that that could happen even today? Be a little clique, a little, this little pocket, and this little person, and these little things. It happens. It's almost human nature. So we know it's a potential and even takes place in the, in the body of Christ, the church today. In previous chapters, we looked at the competitive and comparative interactions that disrupted community and caused greater carnality. What do I mean? Well, we tend to compare and compete. Is that true? Okay, ladies, I'll start with you. Not being, you know, entirely focused on that alone, but let's face it. Women oftentimes pay more attention to fashion than men do. Or hairstyle, or makeup, or whatever. And you inadvertently, subvertently compare like, oh, I wonder where she got that. I think I've seen that at Costco. And he's like, and then and it's like, oh boy, she really rocks that. I want to get one of those. There's this competing, and men, you do the same thing. You may not look at the shirt, but you notice whether they're driving a Ford or a Dodge or a Chevy. And then on top of that, like not only are they driving that, it's a newer one. Man, did they get a raise? And there's this weird comparing and competing that happens in the human experience, subconsciously. It happens even within the church. That people would compete and compare, and it, and it disrupted community. Because you start focusing on differences, and, and then it led to greater carnality, which is really more earthly wisdom and measure, and seeing how everybody fit. Was that just Corinth? Or is that today? We know it's today, too. One other thing to consider just last week, well, we spent a couple weeks in chapter 6, but chapters 5 and 6, in Corinth, there were some things taking place. We'd read in this, or in this letter, 1 Corinthians, about the perversity and aberrant sexuality that was being endorsed when Christians assembled together. They actually thought they were really more gracious and kind and loving because they tolerated, not just tolerated, signed off and said it's okay concerning sexuality and sexual expression and experience that God said it's not okay. 
And so if you studied with us or you were here, you, you know the chapter content and study. You can catch it online as well if you desire to catch God's word in that regard. So here we see that was just Corinth or was that contemporary? Is it possible that certain things, eh, it's okay, you got to understand, I want to be loving and kind. You know, sometimes we, we get so lazy that we don't really want to live with the character and integrity he's called us to. And with the compassion and empathy and kindness that we should. Because it's just easier just to say it's okay. Well, there was perversity and aberrant behavior sexually in the early church as well. Now we're in chapter 7, and we see God's instruction concerning practical matters in regards to marriage and community. And so, one last little bit of background and we'll pray. The Corinthian culture was broad and and intermixed concerning morality, ethics, religion, and sexuality. It's very similar to today. So have you noticed there is sexual expression that's welcomed, invited, promoted, and expects to be in, expected to be endorsed that you don't agree with as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. So on one side, you have this very broad, anything goes mentality. And yet on the other side, there's this more conservative or more traditional or however you want to say. I went into the spectrum in Corinth. People believed you can do whatever you please as long as you are not knowingly hurting someone else. If it feels good, do it. As long as you're not intentionally and even maybe say maliciously hurting someone. It's okay. Hey, the body is the body. Pleasure is pleasure. Live and love and enjoy life. So here's one. That's in Corinth. That's true today too, you know. And, And then on the other end, you should do no wrong to others. You should live above them through a rigid, disciplined, sober life. So... Swing the pendulum. Do you see what happened? Because that's true today too, right? Our culture. Yes, we see all this that's kind of going downhill fast. But not everybody lives that way. And not everybody lives in this ultra, almost what you could say, hyper-religious mentality. There's this pod, There's a lot in between. In that culture, like, to, you know, more so than we see today because of the logic and the religion of this pagan type of worship. One side... Over here says that the, the body is evil. Whatever you do in the body is not really you. It's the evil that's around you and within you. So you're really not accountable for what you do because it's just the body. And you, you read that in Galatians and other places where there's this, and other passages where the culture said, it, it's all good, just don't hurt people. And he finds it's not, you know, no reason for guilt because they had this evil. You didn't, you didn't start out evil. The world made you evil. It was not your fault. Well, the other side of the pendulum was it was entirely up to you to avoid doing evil. So as you can see, there's these extremes, and in between these opposites were a variety of opinions and philosophies and cultural confusions. So is it not like today? I believe it's been that way every generation since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because now something's happening And it's happened in the first century. It happened in Corinth. It happens in our culture. People are getting saved. They're putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They're born again by the grace of God. They come into this new life experience. And now what's happening? What do I do? 
Can I keep doing what I used to do? Should I stay married? Or should I get a different job? How much of Corinth do I need to flush from my life? Because that's the challenge as Christians. Agreed? How much of this culture is, 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 is kind of consuming me? And how much of it is just the world I live in and I can be a light in it? So let's pray. God, we don't have the answers, but you do. And I know we can relate and connect and understand that what was happening in Corinth is happening today. That as people come into a relationship with you, as each one of us individually that is born again, as we were brought into the family of God by your amazing grace, you give us forgiveness and hope and new life. And now you teach us how to live the new life, not just adapt our old thoughts and ways of thinking, but rather to be built new, refreshed and renewed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind that we would know your good and perfect will, O oh God. And so I would ask, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us this morning words of concern for neighbors and friends and coworkers. You'd speak, speak words of compassion and empathy and understanding You'd bring words of clarity to our own personal lives in areas that are just awkward to figure out and difficult to discern. Holy Spirit, may you speak to each one of us, teaching us your word for your glory and our joy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so here we go. Let's read verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to work through it. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. All right, let's go back to verse 1, and let's journey down Awkward Alley. Some people don't want to address certain things. I'm so glad that God brings clarity from his word on every element and every aspect of life. So I got to lay this out first. Realize, as you see from verse 1, concerning the things which you wrote to me. This, this is a response, a, a conversation, so to speak, on practical matters in marriage. So... Paul, we're told in Acts 18, he spent about a year and a half in Corinth. He actually got there and was pretty disappointed, discouraged, functionally almost maybe depressed. And Jesus appeared to him. We're told that he literally said to Paul, do not be afraid. Do not keep silent for I have many people in this city. So Paul was encouraged. He stayed a year and a half in the city of Corinth and built relationships and got to see the hand of God working. And, and so he then left there, went on with his travels with Jesus and missionary journeys. A letter was sent to him asking some questions about some practical ways to live in regards to culture and this new life. Paul replies, so we can see in this letter, there's probably some other letters that we don't have you know, 
um, secured or kept into the canon of Scripture. God decided which ones are in the Bible, which ones aren't. And so we have this one. We call it 1 Corinthians. It's his response concerning conversation. Now, it starts out with him addressing marriage. It's probable that Paul was married before he began following Jesus. Scripture does not say Paul. It doesn't tell us anything about it. But Paul was a Jewish leader and probably a member of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And so to be on the Sanhedrin, it was required that you be married. To be a Jewish ruling leader, it was expected of you to not only be married but have kids. Because God's commandment out of the Old Testament of Genesis was to be fruitful and multiply. So therefore, you had to be responsible to continue your, your nationality, your hum, the human race. Do you see? So it was expected. But we're not told about Paul's wife. Scripture doesn't say specifically. Perhaps she died. Very probable she left Paul when he committed his life to Jesus Christ. Because committing your life to Christ in that culture, like many parts of the world today, it requires true commitment. You, you literally are ostracized and kicked out of the community, socially and economically. And so it's very possible when he committed his life to Christ, she said, I can't, I can't do this. I'm out. But I don't want to speculate. I'm just throwing out. He's giving these insights, not because they're related to his experience, but because God has given him the word. It's the inspired word of God. I, I wonder sometimes, and I don't, don't want to make too much of a point of this, but if Paul understood he was actually being used by God to pen something comparable to Isaiah or Deuteronomy or you see what I'm saying? I, I don't know that he consciously knew that in the moment. But God used him to bring forth the heart of God brought through the hand of Paul to present truth. It's going to be relevant as we work through this particular uh, chapter because he, he identifies some things that Jesus talked about and then he identifies some things that God brought through him to share uh, in regards to truth. So nonetheless, notice what it says. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man. It's not better. It's not the best. It's, it's good. It's okay. It's all right. In the world you live in, in the society you're a part of, and it's not just North America. It's not just now. It's been that way often. Being single is seen as inferior. And, and it, it's okay. He's just saying it's okay. It's fine. It's not inferior to being married. People compare and assume that a single person is incomplete, insufficient, lacking, right? Do you not know that? I mean, how many people come, oh, have you found anybody yet? Was I looking for someone? Or are you, have you, have, you know, who's God got in your life to complete you? Like, uh, me. I'm me, you know. And, and our society, I don't think it's in any way controlling or any form of maliciousness or, but it's just kind of assumed that you're, you're, you're complete now that you're married. And what is he saying here? It's okay to not be married. And we're getting into it even more. You know, the reason one is single or the reason one is married is really the matter that's more important. And that's what he touches on. Listen, if you're, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, 
because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. So he's saying, you know, there's a responsibility and a role and God has a design. See, God has designed sexuality as a whole body experience. And so, because he's designed it that way, you've got to realize he knew what he was doing when he created man and woman. Can we agree with that? He knew what he was doing when he created man and woman. He didn't make mistakes. He didn't get the gender backwards. He didn't get it all messed up that you can fix it later. It's very, the Bible's very specific, and not in a rude way. It's just very specific. It brings clarity and, and clears the confusion for your life. He created man. He created woman. And he set the framework for the marriage experience. Intimacy between husband and wife is beautifully designed, and, and it's a wonderful experience. But like most things, when you take it outside its design and try to make it function, it actually causes more problems. I thought of a few different analogies for this to help us wade through the confusion and muddy waters of our day. And there's just, there's two that make sense. You're a, a vehicle, functionally, this body's a vehicle, agreed? You know, you're not going to live here forever. And so as a vehicle, if I buy a Corvette... And the manufacturer tells me the design and purpose of the Corvette. And I could go on some tracks. I could hit some curves. I could hit some, you know, challenging smooth areas. And, and have it, the vehicle's designed for that. But I also could, according to my volition, my choice, take that four-wheeling up out of Pine and Featherville. And I can get off the road and I can just, it, it's got power. I might have to switch to an all-terrain tread for tires, but I can, I, can, I can go through the rocks. I can, do, I can go. But guess what? It's outside of its design for the vehicle, and I'm going to do a lot of damage. If I continue on that long enough, I'll destroy the vehicle, and the vehicle won't be for its intended purpose or function. So you make the association. You get it, right? We live in a culture that says sex is okay. It, however you want to do it, it works for you, do it. With what, who, when, wherever, whatever. And God says, actually, it's beautifully designed and wonderfully made to function within this framework between a husband and a wife. And when you take it outside of that, it starts, you just, it really causes more grief, more heartache, and more problems. Now, what was happening in that culture is very odd to me. I, I did a couple of different, digging down a couple of different commentaries and men and, and women that have studied this over the years. And I, it still seems odd. There were marriages where they did not have sexual relations. They, they considered it to be more spiritual to not give in to those urges. So they, they lived together, even in the same bed, but didn't have sexual relationship. Weirdo. I, mean, I don't know why anybody would do that. It just seems odd to me, in a sense, because that seems to be God's design. But if you think about it, God's really just saying it's not so much frequency or personal decisions. It is recognizing you have a certain drive. Agreed? You have certain drives. You have things that are somewhat choice, volition, but some are more aut autonomic. Like you have, a, you have a drive that could be said to, to breathe, correct? You don't have to think about it. If you start wheezing and gasping, it's not because, oh, dang it, I was inhale, exhale, 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 inhale. I got it all backwards and now I'm all messed up. 
It just happens. And the only way you really know that drive exists is when you close the port and you can't breathe. And after a while, what do you do? You gasp and you, you, you got to have it. Um, sleep is very similar. You know, sleep is by volition, but you know you need sleep, correct? It's a drive. You have a body need. I got to have some sleep. Have you ever been around somebody that maybe has the technical description of sleep deprivation? They're what you call a jerk. You know, they're just, they, they've got to the point where they can't function in a courteous and polite and social manner. And many of you have done this. You just, oh, shut up, I'm so tired. And it's like, I'm sorry I said that, but I really meant it. I'm just so tired. Because you have a need for sleep. Jesus was in a boat, in a storm, taking a nap. And they're like, are you kidding me? You sleeping and we're dying? And he just, all right, you know, he had a bodily need. Alongside with that, you have a need for food, correct? You know, you get a craving. If I go in 45 minutes long, this is second service, brunt lunch is coming up. You know, I can read the faces, you know. I know myself. I make it a point to grab a bite to eat between first and second service. Because I don't want a hangry second message. Because it's like, oh, I've got to get through this because, oh, I'm hungry. And you know where it goes. The hungrier you get, it's a drive. It's a bodily need. You know, sex drive is in that category as well. And so people want to deny it. But in reality, it's present. And what's so important is that these drives are handled with self-control. Because that's the thrust of this text. That they're handled with self-control and realization. Now notice... He, he's indicating that there's, you know, an awareness that you should have. The church in Corinth, the people, the believers in Corinth, some of them have entertained, had entertained. It's more spiritual to be married and be celibate. Because, see, you're honoring the marriage commitment, but you're now being more spiritual than carnal. And he says here, notice, you know, that each man have his own wife and each woman, her, her husband, let them render the affection due. Affection, benevolence, kindness. God's design for husband and wife is for them to serve one another, to render affection that is due. Sex without affection is a form of manipulation and self-serving. In reality. And so, true God's design in marriage, and even in this, um, what he's talking about here in sexuality, a sexual experience, it, it's to serve one another. Marriage is a covenant agreement where husband and wife agree to serve one another. Your vows were a commitment. What, what did you say? Culturally, maybe you wrote your own vows, but they were conveying and expressing this. To serve, to honor, to cherish one another. So it was a commitment to serve. You set aside the single mindset and chose to serve one another. It's one of the first things I address when somebody comes to me and, you know, they're holding hands and they're excited and they got a glow on their face and they're kind of blinking their eyes at each other. And like, you know, we're so glad what God's done. We want to get married. Is there anything that, you know... What do we do? I say, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to sit with you or, uh, you know, connect you with this, you know, couple who's been 
married for a while and been down this road, and we'd love to do what we call premarital discipleship. We don't do counseling. We do discipleship. We go to the Word of God and disciple you in the Word in regards to the topic you have brought up. So one of the first things I do, I sit there and listen to their, you know, how they got connected, and I said, okay, so nice to hear a little background. So let me make sure we're, we're thinking the same, biblically. What you're saying to me is, I want to serve this other person the rest of my life. I don't want to serve myself anymore. I want to serve this other person. This is my, my desire, my goal. This is, this is why I want to get married. I've never had anybody agree with me. <laughs> never. I've never. Yes, you know what, Pastor? You read my mind. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, no, no, wait a minute. I just don't want to do dishes. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I, I was just... I just don't like being so lonely. I, I don't want to have someone to cuddle up against. And Oh, so you have a, a desire. You want more of your needs, Matt, so you're going to bring in another person to meet your needs. You, that's the fast path to disaster. You're wanting, according, look at this text. You, you don't have the authority over your body. In other words, what it's saying is you have responsibilities in this commitment of the relationship called marriage. And you learn to serve one another in all areas of that marriage. You're, it's not just what you want. Honestly, it's one of those areas that that's just simple thought and application of this truth that you just, you don't, you don't see what's in it for me. You realize I'm committing to serving this other person. Because you do not know how selfish you are, Mr. Single Person. You don't know. And the way you'll find out if God leads you to this, is you'll get married and you'll find how selfish you are. There's nothing that'll prove it faster than somebody around you all the time. And you think it's all love and fun. Oh, it's so good. I did not realize how selfish I was until I seen how to interact in a household with another person. And you know Kim, she's pretty gracious and pretty kind. And yet it's like, oh man, they don't even know how to put the towel back on the rack. Oh, my goodness. You know, why would they put the... She's in New Hampshire. She might listen to this, so I'll have someone edit this part out. Just kidding. It's like she loads the dishes all randomly with the utensils. Are we of the same planet? <laughs> Knives, forks, spoons in the same rack. When you pull them out, you put them right into the drawer. You know, it's easy. No. <laughs> I mean, are we even compatible? like, ah, and yet it's those little things that remind you how selfish you can be, which is awesome because you won't fix something that ain't broken, correct? But when you start seeing, man, I'm kind of self-minded. I get to serve. Okay, I got to see, okay, how do I learn to to fulfill my responsibilities and and do it in a way that's God-honoring? And so you see, it says, render the affection due uh, this kindness, this, this benevolence, this love expressed for one another. Verse 5 is interesting because I can speak to it practically. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. There are times when a husband and wife are apart from one another. And there are times when they agree to focus on spiritual matters for a short period, committing to fasting and prayer for a short time. But understand this, sex is not a bartering chip or a leverage against your spouse. 
It's not what God's design is. It's not meant to be something you manipulate. You've got to follow with the flow. Render the affection due. So that involves communication. That involves conversation in the sense of, you know, discussing the reality and life and personal and intimate matters and needs and all these different things. And so it comes down to where you're just like, okay, you know, it cannot be, do not deprive one another, not withhold as a form of leverage or getting what you want. I'm going to move on from there because you're probably, some of you might be so convicted you're just going to start squirming. Anyway, some of you may be going, nah, not me, her. Anyway. Sometimes I just shouldn't be allowed to talk. Verse 6. <laughs> it's not a commandment. It says this is a, con- I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Remember, this is a conversation on marriage. It's not a mandate for everyone to enforce. It's an instruction so couples can make informed decisions. So husband and wife can now make an informed, oh, I didn't realize that. There was a lot of bombardment. There was a lot of false teaching and a lot of confusion. A lot of young believers that are trying to figure out what the word of God meant and what it said and what, how God would direct them. And they come up with some really crazy ideas sometimes. And this is just meant to, listen, this is not the, the treatise. This is not the absolute for all marriages. It's just you've got to have more to think about. And step away from maybe your sheltered or maybe biased opinions. Okay, well, you know, that makes sense. This is, a, this is a good insight. He shifts now from this issue to, you know, verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. Or it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Whether you're single or married, it's simple. Serve God. Glorify Him with your life. Don't try to be someone else. If, if a person is unmarried, or he says in this case, widowed, then, then don't think it's more spiritual to be married, but rather it's more spiritual to be obedient. Is more spiritual to be worshipful, to, to, to walk closer with God, to know the living God. And so don't try to be someone else. Don't try to do something else. And don't be dishonest. If you find yourself, it says here, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. No, no, I don't have that drive. No, I don't have that. And then you're looking at stuff and doing stuff and thinking stuff. It's like, stop lying to yourself. Don't give in to the passions per se. It's like, oh, I'm always thinking about it. I must get married. You know, if you get married to have sex, you're, you're going to be a mess. I know that may be too direct for some people, but I can't back it up because I already said it. <laughs> the fact is, if, you're, if you don't have control in this area and you think, well, if I get married, that'll quench my drive and my desires. No, it'll be an experience and you'll be seeking a new expression later. Because you're not functioning within the parameters that God has set. You say, well, of course I am. I'm, I'm getting married to deal with this problem. Well, no, that's not how you deal with it. Sadly, I've seen too many that think that will solve the problem that's burning within them. It's not just the marrying. It's making sure you're willing to serve. Does that make sense? Because if you try to fix one problem by entering into a relationship of commitment, but you haven't committed to fixing this problem or dealing with this problem, then guess what? You, well, let me just say it this way. You have two problems now (laughs) because it's going to be difficult. So 
if they cannot exercise self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And we have things that seem to overwhelm us and, and almost overcome us. God teaches, learn to trust me. We read it in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So these areas that I don't understand why it's this way, don't lean on your understanding. But in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. He will, just one step at a time, one day at a time. I hope I can, I hope I've covered that enough without getting too off course. But don't give in to passions, but at the same time, don't try to be single when God's given you the gift to be married. Don't try to be married when he's given you, do you see the word, right? It was a gift to be single. I believe it is a gift. I believe God enables people to be single. They're not inferior. They're not any less. That's just a gifting that God has given us according to what the Bible tells you and me. Let's move over to verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. So he's now addressing to the married... He's going to address what Jesus had already talked about. Because that's why that wording is that way. And it's saying, you know, not I, but the Lord. You'll find it in Mark. You'll find it in Matthew. Of course, you can find in other places the, the, the treatise, which involves the, the whole complexity and the whole intricacy of the theology of marriage, of, of the wedding covenant and agreement. But here he says, the Lord's already spoke about this. A wife is not to depart from her husband. So here's the background, I believe. What do you do if your husband is not yet a believer? What do you do if you're living in Corinth or here? You come into a relationship with God. You give the experience of forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You're born again, born of the Spirit. But your spouse is, is not there. Spouse is, is still where, where they were before you got saved. What do we do? Well, some were told you are now unequally yoked. Your husband will say, I'll use that as an example, and I'll give you a reason why here in a bit. Your husband is going to interfere with your raising of your children. Your husband is going to take you off track spiritually. Your relationship is first between you and the Lord, so you need to focus on the Lord and cut loose the husband. And, and he's like, but a wife's not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Continuing on in verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who is, does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Divorce her. So here again, Paul is the instrument to address a matter that Jesus left for Paul to speak the specifics to. Jesus spoke, as you know, about marriage and divorce. It's recorded, as I mentioned, in the Gospels. And now God is bringing through Paul other specifics in regards to relationships and marriages. Now, Jesus ascended, we know that, and then empowered his disciples to distribute the word of God to all the world. The early apostles were uniquely used to complete the canon of Scripture, from Matthew to Revelation. And so that's what we have here. Paul's referencing, okay, the, Lord didn't, the Lord's given me this word to share with you. I say that specifically within that framework, Matthew to Revelation, because there's no more. You, you, don't, you don't have a word from the Lord to, be, 
to be put in. I, you're not going to read after Revelation, Daniel 2 or 2 Daniel. Because it's complete, it's closed. Now there will be an emphasis and an understanding and a teaching that could come through any one of us to bring us to the word. I say that to help you see why he phrased it this way, I believe. Into the text. It says, if you do depart, to remain unmarried. In other words, you know, someone doesn't believe, but you're not to just say, well, I'm done, I'm out. I'm born again, and you're not, and I'm moving on. Verse 12 you know, he says, you know, to the rest, I not, but the Lord, if you have a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. A woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now catch this next portion. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Let me talk about that just briefly. Sanctified, set apart. The unbeliever, the husband or even the children, are introduced to the gospel by the devotion of the believing family member. So in that situation, you have nobody believing the Lord, and then one of them comes to a a genuine born-again experience relationship with God. That person now has a way to shine the light of truth in a very um, effective manner. So they're, they're set apart. They can get it from, don't, don't misread and say, oh, they're saved because the spouse is believing and saved because we know that is inconsistent with scripture. You don't get saved because grandma loves you and she lets you live with her and because she loves Jesus now automatically she gets to, you know, click onto you and you go up in the rapture unwillingly. So, Here's what we got going on, though. Let me just read through this portion, and then I'm going to tie it together from a personal experience. In verse 14, the unbeliever, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such, such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And we know that that person, the spouse, can't save another, wouldn't but they can bring the light of truth that people could respond to the gift of salvation. Uh, Kim, my wife, we've been married 40 years, and she came into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. She was born again a year before I was. And so when she committed her life to Christ, it created a little friction in the home front because I didn't want anything to do with church. You already know my background. I, I don't even have the courage to get your cash before you get in the door. So it's like I had a really jaded, and I think thankful for it in a way, because it helped me think about things openly and differently. Anyway, so she's going to church, and I'm like, I'm not going to church. I work Monday through Friday, and I, I did. I work hard. I only got two days off, and I'm not going to waste one of them sitting on my butt somewhere. That's just the way I thought. So She's going to church, and I'm not, and it's like, ah. But I start seeing changes in her. I start seeing things about her that are, she's just, she's always been my best friend. And, and yet I'm seeing things that are just even more kind-hearted, and there's just something about her that's just drawing me to her. And I, I, I'll, be, I'll admit, not, not, you know, more shamefully than anything, I, I, I did what I could do to interfere with her early growth. 
you know, she'd say, hey, let's, uh, I'm going to go to church in the morning. Then after I get, afterwards I get home, I'll, I'll fix your brunch or I'll, I'll fix us a, a family breakfast, lunch, whatever. I'm like, hey, why don't we go down to the hotel, the Waihi, or why don't we go here? They have a really cool buffet first thing in the morning. Why don't you just skip church and let's all go to breakfast as a family? Or I'd say, hey, let's go up and do this, and we can leave first thing in the morning. And, you know, I knew what I was doing. I was not wanting to go to church, and I didn't want to miss out time with her. And so, you know, she sometimes would go with my suggestions, and other times she would say, hey, I'll just, I'll I'll be out of church early, and we'll be, you know. And it was really fascinating as I looked back on it, because, like, wow, she was so patient and so literally filled with the Holy Spirit that she just loved me and let me see truth. She didn't, you know, start, you know, thumping me with the Bible or insert Bible verses in my sandwich. When I took a bite, I pulled out a Bible verse or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Some really weird things that people have done witnessing to their husband. No, she, she, just, she just loved me in a new way. And, and I've I seen that. I've seen that warmth. I've seen that compassion. I've seen that something was different. And so finally, I just got up the courage, I believe, to just say, okay, I'll go to church with you. And so I went, and it wasn't as weird as I thought it would be, but it was, it was up there, you know. And so, but it was, there was just something unique about it. It was something that I wasn't used to. It was, it was something interesting. And I went again, and I didn't know Kim did this, but she filled out a response card, so to speak, and said she wanted to meet with the pastor and, and you know, kind of, I wanted, to, I wanted to visit, basically. Well, this guy shows up at our house and his wife. And so Bob, Pastor Bob, he shows up at our house. And, and so I'm like, well, this is awkward because I didn't know he was coming. Well, so I, she told me, but I, that, not that I was listening. I mean, it didn't, didn't seem important to me. Well, here he is, and he's wearing a pair of jeans just a shirt, wearing a pair of whites. If you know what whites are, they're a logger-style boot. You don't buy them unless you're just trying to impress someone. Or you know how to work, and you need you know what. So I found out that he was, for his tent making, so to speak, he cut firewood and hauled firewood. So he was just a hard-working guy. I could relate to him. But as we're talking in the, living, in the kitchen there, he then says to me, well, you know, you don't have to come to church to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know God. And I'm like, oh, man, this is awkward. How are they going to get my money if I don't show up? This is before the internet. So I'm like, oh, what's his angle? Because I was wanting to know his angle. But he was so genuine. He was very, he was, and he, he told me Bible verses. I don't know what that meant at the time. I just, you know, he validated what he said by pointing to this, this book. Well, he then said, you know, he challenged me, if you would, to get to know Jesus Christ. Because, see, I thought, well, that's good. I don't have to go to church. I can go worship God in the mountains. Because he made them, and so therefore I could have this relationship with my creator. And, and he, but he challenged me, just get to know Jesus. And it's like, that seems so simple, so clear. I was used to, to a regiment and a requirement and certain things you had to do to somehow try to get into right relationship with God. And here he's just saying, be real. And so you see how I'm tying this all together. Kim chose to serve God and to really focus on him. And she was the one that God used to bring the light of truth into my life. And a year after she committed her life to Christ, I too had committed my life to Jesus Christ. And it was because, as you see in this, this outline, if you're, how do you know? I mean, she could have followed some advice. She received it. 
there were Christians that found out she was a, a believer, so they come from the different area, the family connection, we're visiting, and basically we're advising her, you know, your husband, Dan, you know Dan, you know, you married him, you know what he's like, he's not changing. He's, this is who he is, you know who he is. And you're actually not going to be able to raise your kids in a godly manner. He's going to interfere with your life. He's going to actually keep you from growing in Christ. And they literally exhorted, not just advised, exhorted her to end the marriage. And they had Bible verses to share it. She was a young Christian. She was like, what do we do? Thankfully, God spoke to her and it's through his word. And not like audible, but just calmed her heart to just stay the course. You let your light shine through, his light shine through you in such a way that it'll, it'll impact those around you. And I think it's just a beautiful picture of verse 16 uh, in my own life. And I know others, I know some of you who are very similar. Um, one spouse came to Christ before the other. And then that love that was manifested literally was shining upon the non, not yet a Christian to the point where they became a Christian. Let's close this section out. We got time. Verse 17 But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Ordain there means so I direct in all the churches. You remember I mentioned this is a letter with direction. Gives us a sense of how to travel this journey with Jesus. Now he addresses, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. If you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the st- at that state in which he was called. Let me just simplify that by saying, grow where you're planted. Live in the season you're now in. Those who had come into a relationship with Christ, those of us who are maybe, you know, maybe some that are just starting this journey, don't try to be somebody else. Understand where you are. Now, If you have to change things in your life in order to live this new life, then change is appropriate. For example, if you were living immorally or working in an illegal or conflicting or compromising vocation, and then you got saved, then you're going to need to make some necessary changes. Agreed? Let me give you a, a, an example. I had a friend come to me, and, and two, two of them actually. One of them is like, okay, man, it's just, I, it was a young Christian. Like, man, I'm so glad. I was so excited. I mean, I, I, it's hard to describe. It's like this weight's taken off of me. It's like, I have this life, but I have this, I have this problem. I, 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 I drive a local delivery truck, and I just, I don't think I can keep doing this. And I'm like, well, you know, local delivery truck's not a problem. Well, it is when you're delivering alcohol. And he realized, man, I can't keep doing this because I feel deeply convicted that I'm, I'm contributing to, to this problem in our society. I, I feel busted on this. And I said, then you got to make your decisions. Had another friend that also drove a, a, a delivery truck for alcohol as well, had no problem with it. He didn't, he didn't have that conviction. So as you see, each one has to make their decision. 
one person may be a bartender and then they get saved and then now they're having a hard time with that whole lifestyle. You see, some people may have lived for the party life and living in such a way that they're just like reckless and freewheeling. And now they're born again. It's like, oh man, I got to make some changes. You know, the important part is you see that what he's saying here is if you were, if you were a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, don't try to be a Jew to be more spiritual because you're not. You know, if, if you were born or if you're living in such a way that, you know, you're poor, then don't try to be rich. Don't say you're going to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and get all this cash just because you said it. You know, it's just that's not just live where you are and let God do the work and give you direction and help you make the necessary changes in your life that you can honor him and walk with him. I'd like to have the worship team come up. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 to wrap all this up. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have beginning there in verse 15, a a beautiful summary, I would say. I think it's a good um, insight into how to put this into practice. So if you would stand with me, I would like to close out with these portions of Scripture in regards to this topic. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, as you see there on projection. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly means carefully. See that you walk carefully. Be, you know, be honest about who you are. Be truthful in where you're at. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Do you believe that the days are evil? Are things darker, so to speak, from a moral or ethical perspective now than they were in 2019. I would actually say 2020 was a pivotal pivotal turning point. And we see internationally, not just a global culture, not just, say, a North America thing, it's a global thing that things have really taken a downhill run. I don't have to talk you into that. If you believe otherwise, I think we could have an interesting conversation for sure. The times are evil. These are are dark days we live in. Therefore, verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is God's calling on your life now? You may have the rest of today. You may have tomorrow. You may have a few days or weeks or months. But you don't know, and I don't know. I believe there's a sense of calm urgency that we can live in. Does that seem like opposites, right? But a calm urgency. I know the Lord is calling me to a closer walk with him. That's calming, but yet I've got to elevate it in my sense of importance and value. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be, in a godly way, under the influence of the Holy Spirit more than anything else in this life be, it sounds odd to say it, but intoxicated by the love of God, by the presence of God, aware of his presence with you. Let's pray, and we will close out together in a song of worship. God, thank you for this study of your word today. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for walking us down an awkward alley and addressing things that we need to know. Thank you, God. And Lord, I pray that there would be continued clarity. The Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us. Today, as we travel or settle in for a relaxing afternoon or throughout the week, bring these things to mind. That we would cash in. We'd redeem the time.
Lord, in the age that we live in, that we know your design for our lives personally in regards to sexuality, in regards to morality and ethics, and shining the light of truth in this world, Lord. Just keep us close to you, Jesus. Keep us close to you. We put our confidence in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.